we started a series last week called Songs of Hope, and I am really excited about these next several weeks um, as we look to psalms that give us hope, psalms that uh, remind us who God is, remind us who we are, and I really, I'm really hopeful that these next several weeks um, can give us as a church, as a faith family, uh, the opportunity to just hear from God, that we would refocus our minds, our hearts, and our actions based on who he is. And so um, last week, I challenged us to do three things during this series. It was to fast, to pray, and to meditate on God's word. And so I encourage you, if you haven't heard um, the sermon from last week, to go back and listen to that, because I go into pretty deep detail about all three of those things, and I teach some really fun acrostics along the way. So, but today, we are looking at Psalm chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, go to Psalm chapter 2. And let me read it to you. It will be on the screen as well. This is Psalm chapter 2. By the way, we're not doing all 150 Psalms. It just, we're doing one and two, and then we're going to jump to 63 next week. So it's okay. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, every song is a reaction to something, right? There's some great songs out there, and there's some really bad songs out there, but every song is a reaction to something. It's a reaction to an experience. So someone goes through something sad, they write a song about it. Someone goes through something happy, they write a song about it. Someone is in love with someone, they write a song about it. And this psalm is no different. It's a reaction to something, that the world is out of control. And this is the reaction that we see in the scriptures, that we have all had moments, right? We've all had moments in our life where things just felt chaotic. You ever felt that way? Where things just felt unstable and the future is blurry. I know for me, this is kind of a silly example, but uh, I remember when I was a freshman at Mary Arden Baylor, And I was a Christian studies major, and I decided my freshman year that I was going to take an upper-level theology class, right? And everyone warned me that the prof that taught this class was the hardest prof at university. So everyone, my, my friends, my academic advisor, they all said, you should not do this, and that just made me want to do it more. And when I showed up that first day of class, the professor asked the question, do we have any freshmen in here? And I raised my hand. I was the only one. 
And he said, you should really, in front of everybody, you should really consider dropping this class. And I was like, no, I am not dropping this class. I'll be fine. And when the first test came around, I was feeling pretty good about it. It was one of those tests that only had three questions, and then you wrote as much as you could about those three questions. And I remember reading the first question of the test and going, I don't know. I have no idea. And so I thought in my head, okay, I can just get the next two right, and then I'll pass and everything will be, be fine. And I got to the second question, and I was like, I don't know. I have no idea. And then I got to the third, and I was like, oh, no, this is really bad. And I looked up, I'm not kidding, I looked up at the professor, and he's just staring at me. And he went. <laughs> and so my, my, the next thing I did, it was just out of my instincts, I just turned from him, and I looked at the door. Because there was something in my head that just went, run, get out of there. And I thought my life was over when I was 18 years old, because I thought I will never recover from this. Um, and I actually am really good friends with that professor, and he talks about that moment sometimes when I see him. Um, but that's a, that's a funny moment, right? But there are moments. <laughs> what was the song I wrote? Yeah, um, it's, it's titled... It's titled, it, hurt, it Hurts Real Bad. Yeah. Um, but there are moments, right, when your family, it just feels like you're hanging by a thread. When you look around and you go, how did we get here? How did this happen? Um, how does it feel like everything is chaos? And so my question is, for each of us, is how do you handle that chaos? Like, what really do you do when it feels like things are out of control? Do you try really hard to just manage everything and everyone to try to take control of it? Um, how do we handle it? When things, do you put your head down and just kind of hope and wait until it passes? How do we handle the chaos? Well, that's what this psalm is about. There are four movements to the psalm, and the first movement, it's, it's broken up really nicely in your Bible in four different parts, and the first movement here is chaos. There are nations raging. People are plotting. Kings are aligning themselves with each other. And so you're like, what is happening in these first three verses? Well, if you remember back in the Old Testament, the people of God were identified as the nation of Israel. And when God freed the nation of Israel, the people of God, he moved them to a piece of land. And that piece of land was right in the middle of the known world. Like they were just surrounded by nations. He didn't put them off in a corner somewhere. He put them right in the middle of the world. And he told them, you are to be a kingdom of priests, okay? Priests, simplified, is it, a priest helps someone know who God is, helps someone connect with God. And he told them, as the nations come to you, you are going to teach them about me, to teach them about holiness, to teach them about the law. And in Psalm 2, the nation of Israel is actually at a very uh, vulnerable moment, right? King Saul is gone. And in this moment, it's a reflection of the inauguration of David. And you know this, one of the most vulnerable moments for any nation is when there is a transition of power. And you would hope that as Israel calls a new king, that the surrounding nations would welcome that. We see that happen all the time in modern times. When there's a new president, the world wishes flattery upon that new president, no matter what they think of him. But you don't see that here. What does it say? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together 
against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the nation of Israel, who is meant to gather all these nations around them and teach them about God, but instead you have Israel surrounded by nations that not only don't want to learn about God and learn about God's law, but nations that want to destroy them. And so I've got a map here. Um, You can pull that up. It might be hard to see, but that blue part, this is around the time of King David. That blue part is the nation of Israel. And if you look at it, everything around it, there are seven countries, six or seven countries there. Every single people group on there wanted to destroy Israel, wanted to destroy them. You've got uh, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and then from the top, Babylon had access All of these nations wanted to destroy the people of God. The people of God are surrounded by chaos. Imagine living there. It's a stressful place to live. At any moment, someone could invade you, and it's absolute chaos. And it says here, it's interesting, um, you can take that map down. Um, The psalm says the nations are saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So you're like, what does that mean? It means that the kings of the world, the leaders of the world, look at the people of Israel and they say, we don't want to be associated with you. We don't want to be associated with your God. They look at the people of God with their law and with their devotion to God, holiness before God, and these kings say, no, thank you. We want to get rid of that. We want to cast you away. The nations look at God and they say, If you remember last week, this is interesting, in Psalm 1, it said, blessed is the man, did you memorize this? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. Last week, it was talking about the individual rejection of God. Psalm 2 is the reality that the nations have rejected God, that the nations look at God and they say, I don't want to be bonded to you. I will cast you Away. And the reality is when you have power, when you have influence, that's very difficult to give up, isn't it? It's very difficult to give up, especially if giving up your power means that you have to be morally restrained in some way. So what you have here is kings who don't want to be morally restrained by the God of the people of Israel. And if you think about it, that's actually a terrifying thing for a king to do. I don't want to be morally restrained by your law, by your God. And so we're going to group up together to destroy you. That's a terrifying thing. It's a terrifying thing when our own political leaders do that, right? When they cast off any kind of moral restraint. It's a terrifying thing when men do that, right? When they say, I want to have control, I want to have power, and I don't care how that affects anybody else. It's a scary thing. And you can see it all around the world today. It looks crazy, doesn't it? It looks like chaos. That's the feeling you're supposed to get in these first few verses. And so we have to ask the question, okay, what happens now? (laughs) What do we do in the midst of the chaos? What do we do when we look around our world at the chaos? What do we do as the people of God? What do you do when there's a sin that controls you and your life feels like chaos because something outside of you has a grip on you and you can't get rid of it? I love verse four. Here's what the king does. You think about the nations raging, the chaos of the world. Here is what our king does. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in 
derision. Did you know this is the only time in Scripture that we're told that God laughs? Did you know that? I like to assume that Jesus had a sense of humor because I don't think that we would have, uh, we would get the kind of joy that we get out of laughter if, if God didn't have a sense of humor. And, but here, notice why and when the Lord laughs. I don't think this is an evil laugh that you would see in a movie or a cartoon like, <laughs> that was more like Santa. But he's not, he's not laughing here evil. It's not out of cruelty. I think he laughs because it is amusing to him that his creation thinks that they have power to make their own rules. All these kings on their thrones who have no sense of morality, they may look like a, th- a threat, but the one who sits in the heavens, the one with the real power, the true king, he laughs. He's not scared of anything. He's not scared of them. I heard someone put it this way once. What makes us tremble makes him giggle, right? What makes us tremble makes him giggle. So what does that mean? Dads, and if you're not a dad, picture that you're a dad and you have a three-year-old daughter, okay? If you have a three-year-old daughter and your daughter came up to you and said, dad, there was a bully at school today and he's really scary. And you would say, what's his name, right? I'll talk to him. I'll tell him what's up, right? So you're going to bow up. You're going to say, okay, I'm going to talk to this kid. I'm going to handle this bully. And then your daughter responded to you, and she said, I don't know, Dad. Like, he's really scary. He's two years older than me. You should be scared too, right? What would you do as a dad? You would laugh because that's ridiculous, right? No five-year-old kid's going to bow up to you. You're the dad. You've got power. You've got authority. I think I can handle myself. The Lord says, or the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs, right? What makes us tremble makes him giggle. And then it says the Lord holds them in derision. That means that they are in contempt. They are out of order. It's courtroom language here. I am the true ruler. I am the judge. I am the only true king. In response to the contempt that God has, he says he will bring his wrath. He will speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury. God's saying this is not okay. There is judgment for sin. He hates sin. He looks at these kings who think they know. They think they have it figured out. They think they have the real power. And he says, if you reject me, then you will know my wrath. And he does the same with us. I think we forget this, that if we go through life thinking that we don't need God, if we convince ourselves that we can plan a better, a future that is better for us than God, if we live life the way that we think will satisfy us, then at the end of the day, he will speak to us in his wrath. There will be a day when there will be no more mercy. There will be a day when there is no more grace. There will be a day when wrath is offered. And we'll talk about that more later. But then in verse six, he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy this is where it gets interesting. Verse 6 is the thematic center of the psalm. There's a transition here because Psalm 2 is known as a messianic psalm. I don't know if you've heard that term before, meaning there are multiple things happening here. There are things in this psalm that um, were meant to be encouraging and practical for the people that were there alive during that time. But this psalm also points forward. And we're going to talk a lot about this. He points forward to someone else, to the Messiah that here there is a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of not only what's happening now, but what is to 
come. In fact, that word anointed in verse 3 is the word Messiah. And Messiah means what? Christ. So here in verse 6, we are to understand two things. First, God is establishing David to rule. Okay, this is the telling of his inauguration. David will rule over the nations, but here there's also something else happening. There is someone else, someone greater than David that will rule over the nations. In verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. In the Old Testament, when you became king, you were handed a decree calling you that king. And you can picture David standing in front of the people with a decree in his hand saying, I have a decree from God. Notice that it doesn't say I have written a decree. It doesn't say I have written a decree. It says I will tell of the decree as if the decree has already been issued. He didn't make it up. And what he is about to read cannot change. Nothing can do anything about it. This plan has been in motion long before David took up the throne and nothing can change it. And here's what the decree says. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Then in this moment, we're to remember God's covenant with David. That in 2 Samuel 12, it says, when your days are fulfilled, this is what God told, God told David. When your days are fulfilled, then you lie down with your father. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build the house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he says this, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. God tells David, you are the king representing the people and you and every one of your offspring that comes after you, I will call my son and they will call me your, their father. And so here in this moment, the Davidic king is coming to power. God declares that he has power and authority over the nations. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possessions. And then he says, you shall break them with the rod of iron, iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That God is establishing a king that will rule on this earth and the force that comes against him is like a clay pot. And the king will take his rod of iron and destroy them. Think about that imagery. How do you destroy a clay pot, a potter's vessel, with a rod of iron? Do you need to swing at it? No, you just need to tap it. Rod wins every single time. And so God gives the kings of the world, the craziness is happening, God establishes his king, and then he gives the kings of the world a warning. Be wise, be warned, serve the Lord, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And here's the fascinating thing about this psalm. It sounds like this is all building up to some kind of massive throwdown, right? Like there's a battle coming. The king's rage, God raises up his king against them. He's got a rod of iron and he's coming after them. But this psalm doesn't end with the story of God's destruction in the nations, does it? It's a warning mixed with grace. He pleads with them, be wise, take refuge, don't perish, be blessed, be happy. It begs the question, question, did that ever happen? Did the kings of Israel ever truly rule over the nations in the Old Testament? Because the people of Israel were meant to tell the nations about God. The king was meant to lead the nations to God. Did that ever happen? No. That if you look throughout the Old Testament, the kings of Israel 
there's some dark stuff in there. (laughs) The kings of Israel start to do some horrible and immoral things and God keeps kicking them off the throne. He did it over and over. And you realize Psalm 2 was never really fulfilled in the Old Testament. Like this never happened. But that's the really cool thing about Psalm 2 is that you have a picture of two kings. You have David and all those who would come after him. And David was never meant to be the fulfillment of this psalm. He was meant to foreshadow the one who would, the Messiah, the Christ. And you see this psalm all throughout the New Testament. Because the early church, think about this, the early church began to realize as they saw everything play out, as they saw what Jesus was doing in his death and his resurrection in the New Testament church, this psalm became the anthem for the New Testament church. That as the church began to explode and they watched what was happening around them, they stopped and they looked around and they went, this is Psalm 2. This is Psalm 2 playing out before us. You see at the beginning of his ministry when Jesus is baptized in Mark 1, 9, it says when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him a dove like a dove. And then in verse 11, it says what? A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Just like David stood with a decree from God and God said, this is my son. He declared to everyone the day Jesus was baptized, this is my son. In the middle of Jesus' ministry, he takes Peter and uh, James and John up a mountain. You remember this? In Mark 9, 2, and it says, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So Jesus is transformed on this mountain before them. Moses shows up. Elijah shows up. Moses, the representation of the law. Elijah, the representation of the prophets, meant to show that Jesus is a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then in verse 7, it says, A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came over the cloud and said, This is my beloved son. Sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? And after Jesus died, rose from the grave, and ascended to heaven, that reality, That reality that Jesus was the beloved son of God, the fulfillment of God's promise to David, that he would rule the nations, that became the church's anthem. In Acts 4, the apostles were telling people about the resurrection of Jesus. They're preaching the gospel, they're healing people, and the religious leaders come out and they arrest them. And they say, hey, you need to stop talking about this Jesus. And then in Acts 4, 20, it says, they say, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then in verse 23, it says, when they were released, they went to their friends, which by the way, I love that they call the church their friends here in Acts 4. When they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, when they heard it, they they said with their voices together to God and they said, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, and so here's where you see Psalm 2, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the apostles look around and they go, God, you predicted this. 
You predestined this. You said this would happen in Psalm 2. They looked around and they saw the nations conspiring together. Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, even Israel, all working together and they went, God, you said this would happen. You said that this would take place. You predestined it. And then in Acts 13, Paul's preaching. I love this. In verse 32, he says, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us and their children by raising Jesus. And it's as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Paul is saying when he rose from the dead, when he beat death, that was his inauguration as king. It was God declaring to the nations, this is my son. It's a declaration to all of us that there is one true king, one true authority. And then the other place you see this psalm in the New Testament is actually in Revelation 2. Revelation 2.26, let me read it to you. It says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he says this, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. Where else have we heard that language? Psalm 2, verse 9, where he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. There will be a day when Jesus will judge. He is the true king. He is the true judge. So let's take a breath and ask the question, what does that mean? That was a lot of scripture. That was a lot of moving pieces. But what does that mean for us? How does that psalm bring us hope? Because <laughs> you're like, that's a lot of mad kings and chaos and rods of iron. How does this psalm bring us hope? Three things, knowing the king, knowing who the true king is, brings us calm in the midst of chaos. Knowing the king brings us calm in the midst of chaos. Life is just really chaotic sometimes. Sometimes it's just the everyday of life, right? Like you're like spring break's coming. Spring break is no break for you because all of a sudden you have to fill your days to entertain your kids all day long, right? And um, life, just sometimes in the normalcy of it, is actually kind of chaotic, where it can be difficult to stop and go, okay, God, this chaos is not a surprise to you. You know what we need. You know what we need. And so God has not left you to rot in that chaos, but there's also seasons where chaos is thrown on you, and it makes life incredibly difficult or maybe you lose someone that you loved, or someone does something that hurts you, or you didn't get a job that you wanted, or you got fired from your job, and it feels like God just kind of left you there to rot in that. You ever felt like that? Where it's like, how did I get here? I remember that feeling when my dad took his own life, and I walked through life like a zombie for weeks. And I had a, a mentor, a friend during that time who would text me or call me, and he would just say, Forwards, he would say over and over, just remember, God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. And there was a calmness that that reality brought to me during that time. And it would do us well to remember the truths about God, to remember the truth of what the implications are that he is king. The reality that our God is unchanging. He is a king who sits on the throne, who is unchanging. 
changing. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Think about this. The king who sits on the throne does not grow with time. He does not learn from his mistakes. He does not adjust as life unfolds, right? We have a God who is consistent in who he is. He does not change based on the chaos that we see. He doesn't change for the worse because that would mean we have no foundation, a little hope. It doesn't mean that he would change for the better because that would mean that he wasn't the best possible thing in the first place, that we find a calm and the reality that our God is unchanging, that his purposes are unchanging, that what he purposes to do both in us and in the world does not change. It does not change. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generation, that we find calm in the reality that the promises that God has made to me, the promises that God has made to you, that those are unchanging. That his promise to forgive you does not fall short. His promise to provide for you the things that you need, not the things that you think you need, but the things that he knows that you need, those things he promises to fulfill. The promise to give you strength when you are weak, those are promises that he does not fall short on one. They do not change. That knowing who the true king is, knowing what he's capable of, not what you and I are capable of, what we think we can accomplish with our money, our resources, and our gifts, but what we, what we know that he can accomplish and that his purposes are unchanging, that brings us calm in the chaos. When life is really hard and you feel like you have nothing to hold on to, you can hold on to the truth that he sits on his throne and he does not change. He will always, always come through. It may not be in how we think that he should come through, but he does because he purposes and he predestines and he plans and none of those things change. Second thing, knowing the king leads to confidence. Knowing the king leads to confidence. After the apostles are arrested in Acts 4, they say a prayer. And I love this. At the end of their prayer, they say in verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. The world's raging. The nations are raging. They say, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They looked around at the chaos around them and they say, God, you predicted this in Psalm 2. You saw this craziness coming. You even purposed how this would play out. So they said, sovereign Lord, who is in control of all of this, they said, God, in light of that, please keep us safe. God, in light of that, please protect us. God, in light of that, please don't let the bad people take over. Is that what they said? No, it's not what they said. What did they say? Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. They did not pray for their safety. They did not pray for God to protect them. They did not pray that bad people wouldn't take over. They prayed for boldness. See, the problem with the world isn't the plan of God. The problem is that we tend to be ruled by fear. We tend to be ruled by safety. And we tend to be ruled by our fear of failure and losing our comfort. But they look at their king and they say, God, give us boldness. I'm not scared of any threat. I'm not scared of any circumstances. But the king that is for me sits on his throne and his plan is 
better. So in the midst of the chaos, we can be calm and we can be confident because we have a good king that does not change. I, uh, I love church history, okay? I think there's a lot of, that we can learn about from looking at the history of the church. And there was a guy named Diocletian. Has anybody here ever heard of Diocletian? Cool, like two of you. Um, he was a Roman emperor who led, this is where my nerdnim comes out. He was a Roman emperor who led the Roman Empire to stretch all the way into Spain. He ruled from 285 uh, to about 305 AD. And when the Romans got to Spain, he put up two monuments, okay? Two different monuments, and this is what they said. The first one said, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximum, Hercules, Caesar, Augustus. That was his full name. For having extended the Roman Empire from the east to the west and having extinguished the name Christian, who brought the Republic to ruin. So that was the first pillar. And the second pillar said this, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximum, Hercules, Caesar, Augustus. For having everywhere abolished the superstition of Jesus Christ and, and having extended the worship of gods. And over a thousand years later, we laugh at that, right? Why? Because you don't know who he is. I paid thousands of dollars in seminary to learn who that guy is, but 99.9% of people will never know his name. And we kind of laugh at him and go, man, how ignorant is that guy? What a fool. Be like if I put two pillars up here and said Colton, Michael White, John, Baptist, whatever, it would be weird and it would be awkward and it would be foolish. And it's foolish for that guy to do that. But imagine living from 285 to 305 AD. Imagine living during his reign when fellow brothers and sisters were being captured and killed because of his rule. Friends being taken away, not knowing that they were going to be taken away that day. Do you think that those people knew his name? Do you think that they feared him? When the walls closed in around them, they knew who he was. And I'm willing to bet that someone at some point thought of Psalm 2-4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Thousands of years later, no one knows this guy's name, but every person knows. All of us in this room, we know the name of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, history, when history tells the full story, there will be one name that will be remembered. Jesus Christ the King. So the next time that the, you feel stress and anxious because the world feels a little bit chaotic, you remember that he sits on the throne and nothing is a threat to him. The things of this world have no real power that he will be remembered when history tells the story. The third thing is that knowing the king leads to compassion. Knowing the king leads to compassion. How does knowing the king create compassion? It does it in two ways. First, it teaches us that judgment is his, not ours. Judgment is his not ours. Let's say that someone does something to hurt you, like actually and re really and truly hurt you. What's a normal response to that, to someone who hurts you? A normal response is to attack them back, to get revenge, to get back at them. But what does this text show us? When the nations were raging against the people of God, the king brings a warning full of compassion. O kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord. Rejoice. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in him that we would look at those who would hurt us, who would attack us, and we would say, I'm begging. Please know him. 
please know him. Know his grace. Know his mercy. Know his justice. Know his power. The second way that it teaches us compassion is that when we understand that he has had compassion on us, we can have compassion on others because you've rejected him. We've offended him. We ran from him, and he chased after us. He pursued us. We didn't do anything to earn his grace. We didn't purchase a way into his kingdom. Our ticket was purchased for us, and understanding the gift of grace leads us to be gracious with others. But just like Psalm 1, Psalm 2 exposes the reality that there are two paths. There are those who take refuge in God, those are the blessed ones. And then there are those who reject God. Those who reject him will perish. And at the end of all things, God's justice will fall on either Jesus' atonement on the cross, or it will fall on us. It will fall on you. All sin must be held accountable. He is a God of justice and the gift of grace is that Jesus stood in our place of judgment. If I could boil all this down to a moment to close it out, here's what I would say. The world can rage as much as it wants. We can kick and scream about how hard life is, right? But here's what I know. None of us will enter heaven beating our chests, as in some way we gain access on our own merit. But we also won't enter heaven limping. We won't enter heaven limping either, as if life has beaten us down so much that we barely made it there. When we enter heaven, there will be one reality, that the king who commands the sea, the king who rules the nations, the king who stands in our place of judgment and rose from the grave, that king, when we see him, there will be one thing coming out of our mouths. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that king sits on the throne right now. Christ the king isn't some future reality that we hope for. Think about this. I think sometimes we think Christ the king, his power, his reign, that will come one day. No, he's king now. He isn't some future reality that we hope for. It makes no sense to look at the, around the world, to look at our circumstances, to look at our sin and say, God, someday you will be king. No, he is king now. God, someday you'll make your power known. No, his power is known now. Someday this sin will be gone and you will love me. That's not how it works. He's king now. He's in power now. And the cross of Christ isn't some promise of a love that's gonna come to you someday in the future. The cross of Christ looks at your imperfection and goes, I know. I know you're not perfect. I know that you fall. I know that you sin. I make provision for what you lack, both in the atonement that Christ's blood covers you and in your growth in the spirit in you. So no, hoping and wishing that Christ's power will be shown someday, that is a foolish thought because he has power now. So it makes no sense to look around the world and go, God, the nations are raging. It's chaos out there. My life is chaos. God, I hope you come. No, he, he's here. He's here now. We don't hope for a future reality. We hope because he's already present. God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. The king reigns right now. And the cross of Christ says, I make provision for what you lack. The king of glory stepped in to do what we could not. And I love the last line of this psalm. 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You want to escape his wrath? Escaping God's wrath doesn't mean running from God. It means running to him. You want to see calm, confidence, compassion in the midst of the chaos? It's not running from God. It's running to him who makes provision for what we lack. 